Good morning. My name is Anthony. I'm the pastor here at Valley Hope. Um, you know, I'm thinking about this song that we just sang, and um, you know, there's this way that we uh, we think about. We really try to be really intentional and think about the songs that we sing here, and, and the words, the the way that they talk about God. For one, to make sure they're talking about God, and um, you know, we. Some people look at this song and, and say it doesn't really say a lot about about God. There's not like uh, there's not as many words like in great is thy faithfulness. There's all these things that, that they're saying. Um, but I, what's notable in Scripture is that oftentimes when we get these sort of prophetic glimpses into what heaven is like, a lot of times there's very simple declarations of God's character that are repeated over and over and over again. Um, because they're simple, yet uh, infinitely deep. And so they need to be repeated. And um, the, the fact that God loves us is worthy of being repeated again and again. Um, because, not because we are remarkably lovely, but because God is remarkably loving. And, and if you're like me, that seems unbelievable that God would love people like me. And uh, it's a, an especially comforting refrain on Father's Day because, um, you know, it's, a, it's an incredibly fraught day for many people. Fatherhood as an institution is, is sort of disappearing. An increasing number of people grow up without fathers. Many people have lost their fathers in untimely fashion um, to, to sickness, to death, abandonment. And then if you're like me, you are a father, you, you're sort of aware all the time of how... I always feel like I'm the worst father, okay? That's, I'm, this is sick, but in the room, I'm constantly ranking myself of dads in the room. And I just feel like objectively I'm at the bottom of the list all the time. There's many wonderful fathers in the room and it just sometimes just irritates me that you're all so good at it and I'm hitting the bottom of the list all the time. And so to hear that as a father, that God is like this, that he, he loves even a, a failure of a father like me, or, or to, if you have lost your father or been abandoned your, by your father, or your father was just a rough man who was particularly poor about talking about his love. Here's a God in his character. He loves us. He loves us. It's a, it's a valuable and worthwhile thing to repeat and to sing. So I really appreciate that, that song. One other thing before I get started in Second Samuel. Um, I was... Uh, you know, as, as summer comes, uh, the page sort of turns for us. We're very much a, a, a church that's tied to the school year. Look at where we are. We're in a school. Um, and a lot of us have kids. Um, you know, normally the, the Home for Children is here. They're on their beach retreat. Um, so a big chunk of our people are in the middle of the school year. So as, as summer comes, it provides a, a chance to kind of collect our breath. We, we try to dial things down. 
uh, so that we need less volunteers. And, um, and I'm just sort of looking at where we are and where we're going. And, um, you know, we've been here a year in this, in this place. And things are different. We're in a different place. And it feels like in a way that we're changing seasons of, of growth and maturity. And, uh, you know, I was telling friends, some pastor friends, um, that in some ways it feels like we're navigating waters with, with reefs just below the surface. That I feel like there's ways that we could just get grounded and in trouble just on left and right. And not even in really ways that I can name. It just feels that way. Uh, to me as we look forward. And so I was just praying for our church this week and literally laying on the ground um, in, in the junction and just extending my hands to God and praying for our people, not even really knowing for what. And, uh, and as almost as soon as I, I started praying this way, I was really reminded of of the many ways that we've grown and seen God do excellent, awesome things this year, particularly in the avenue of serving this school. And I was just so encouraged to think about that and also sort of interpret how I was feeling through the truth of what God has done in us, through us this year at this school. Because our thing, the thing that we want to do is to see the kingdom of God transform this valley. That's what, that is our mission. That is what we are invested in above all else. The cause that we are championing is the cause of Jesus and serving him because he is this great and glorious king. That is who we are. That's what, that's what we want to stay true to that. If we're not sticking to that chief fact, then we, we got to rain back in. And I, and I think we've seen some evidence, good things that we want to see happen. And I just realized um, that is not going to happen without opposition. And I'm, I'm not a spiritual warfare guy. If you know me, that's, I'm a very like practical nuts and bolts prove it to me, show me the math kind of person, okay? That's just my personality. And, and people who talk a lot about spiritual warfare, it is, I'll just be honest, it is hard for me. Because I'm like, well, maybe you should just not eat so much at night. You feel better during the, I don't know. Um, and and what, I'm, what I'm not telling you is, be on the lookout, demons are hiding behind your lampshade or something like that. Um, my, my sense was that we've seen evidence of good things that happen when we are dialed in on what is most important, focused on King Jesus. And that the, there is biblically a kingdom of light and a kingdom of darkness. And what most the darkness would like is that you would just take your eyes off Jesus a little bit. And it doesn't even have to seem like a massive thing. In fact, what often happens, you know, C.S. Lewis talks a lot about this in screw tape letters, is that you can get focused on good things instead of Jesus. That's often the temptation. 
we just get focused on what is good instead of what is God. And so I, I wanted to, to warn you gently and warn myself that the thing that, that the enemy of our souls would most like to happen is that we as individuals and as a church would start to be interested in what is good instead of what is God. And this can be subtle and it can be interpersonal. It could be between you and another person. But Jesus is what we have to be all about. And anything else that's going to pull us to the left or to the right, we have to drag it out into the light and kill it. And so, for, for example, for me as, as a pastor, I, that requires me to look at all these other things that I could be interested in and think are, are important and good and probably are. But if I am not first interpreting those things through the lens of how are we dialed in on Jesus, then I need to, to reinterpret or set aside those things until I can get the first things first. You know, I think that that temptation will always be out there. But we've seen a lot of good things this year. And I would just say be on watch, be on guard. Because enemy territory doesn't get taken lightly. The good thing is what we just sung. She loves us. All the ways that you and I will fail God and fail one another, He is still who He is. He loves us. And He's better at holding us than we are holding on to Him. So, my, uh, my encouragement is just the words of a very simple song. Seek ye first the kingdom of God. And all these other things will be added unto you. I don't know if that means anything to you, but it was, uh, it was really encouraging to me. And it's actually quite in line with where we are in 2 Samuel today. 2 Samuel 14 and 15, um, we have kingdom issues in play. And we have uh, misdirected priorities and personal agendas that bring disruption, betrayal, ultimately a coup into Jerusalem, into David's own household. Um, there's a lot of verses here between these two chapters, so I'm not going to, to read all of the verses in 14 and 15. I, I've sort of stitched them together so we can, uh, I can help you get a, a broad picture of, of what's going on here. And this isn't even the full cycle of this story. Um, Daniel Lancaster will preach next week and, and add more, and then I believe there's one more week to this. Uh, this cycle of, of Absalom, David's son, bringing anarchy to the kingdom. So uh, if you remember Absalom in the previous week, he is the one who has uh, taken vengeance for his sister, who was taken advantage of by his half-brother, and he runs away. He uh, leaves the king's household, and David is, is focused on the loss of his son Amnon, and 
he does nothing as he should. Um, he does nothing that he should. He should not have done nothing. And he lets his son go and, and does pretty much nothing about it because he's laden with grief for Amnon and doesn't quite know what to do with Absalom. And so in 14, uh, there's this man, Joab, and Joab is uh, uh, one of David's right-hand men, uh, does violence on David's behalf. He does a lot of things. And this is, uh, this is at the end of David's life. Um, one commentator lays it out and that it might even be in the last year of his life that all of this is happening. David is an old man. And, and Joab sees the situation where now Absalom, he feels probably, should be the crown prince. He should be the one who's rising into the position of power next. And so he's looking at old man David, and he's looking at Absalom who's separated from his father, and he kind of wants to, to bring the two together so he can ensure this transition of power. However, there's already a sense that David's other son, Solomon, is actually going to be the crown prince. He's probably already been declared that way because of his name change and some things uh, along those lines. So Joab actually is maybe exerting his own influence here to try to say, okay, old man, you know, maybe things have gotten a little foggy up here. Um, let's try to steer this the right direction because Absalom should be next up. So uh, Joab goes and tries to, to remi remedy this situation through this. Um, he brings, he basically hires a woman to tell David a parable, and, and David uh, kind of responds to her the way that he responds to Nathan uh, previously, and he makes a declaration about what this person should do in the parable, and the woman says, hey, this is you. And once again, David is taught by this parable, and he's convinced that he should bring Absalom home. So I'm just going to read, and, and these are chunks from 14 and 15. So Joab arose and went to Geshur and brought Absalom to Jerusalem. And the king said, let him dwell apart in his own house. He is not to come into my presence. So Absalom can come back to Jerusalem, but he, David still doesn't want to see him. So Absalom lived apart in his own house and did not come into the king's presence. Now in all Israel, there was no one so much to be praised for his handsome appearance as Absalom. From the sole of his foot to the crown of his head, there was no blemish in him. And when he cut the hair of his head, for at the end of every year he used to cut it when it was heavy on him, he cut it and he weighed the hair of his head, 200 shekels by the king's weight. That's five pounds of hair. I calculated it. That's a lot of hair. There were born to Absalom three sons and one daughter whose name was Tamar. She was a beautiful woman. And uh, there is this sort of I think, note of sadness, because um, Tamar is also the name of Absalom's sister that he's, he's stood up for, in a sense, executed vengeance on, and he's named his daughter after her. After this, Absalom uh, got himself a chariot and horses and 50 men to run before him, and Absalom used to rise early and stand beside the way of the gate. And when any man had a dispute to come before the king for judgment, Absalom would call to him and say, from what city are you? And when he said, your servant is of such and such a tribe in Israel, Absalom would say to him, see, your claims are good and right, but there is no man designated by the king to hear you. Then Absalom would say, oh, that I were judge in the land. Then every man with a dispute or cause might come to me, and I would give him justice. And whenever a man came near to pay homage to him, he would put out his hand and take hold of him and kiss him. 
Thus Absalom did to all of Israel who came to the king for judgment. So Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. At the end of four years, Absalom said to the king, four years, please let me go and pay my vow, which I have vowed to the Lord in Hebron. For your servant vowed a vow while I lived at Geshur in Aram, saying, if the, if the Lord will indeed bring me back to Jerusalem, then I'll offer worship to the Lord. The king said to him, go in peace. So he rose and went to Hebron. But Absalom sent secret messengers throughout all the tribes of Israel, saying, as soon as you hear the sound of the trumpet, then say, Absalom is king at Hebron. With Absalom went 200 men from Jerusalem who were invited guests, and they went in their innocence and knew nothing. And while Absalom was offering the sacrifices, he sent for Ahithophel, the Gilanite, David's counselor from his city, Gilo. And the conspiracy grew strong, and the people with Absalom kept increasing. And a messenger came to David saying, the hearts of the men of Israel have gone after Absalom. But David went up the descent of the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went, barefoot and with his head covered. At this point, David abandons Jerusalem because Absalom is returning to the city now with this crown upon his head, with people following him. So he decides to leave Jerusalem. And all the people who were with him covered their heads, and they went up weeping as they went. And it was told David, Ahithophel is among the conspirators with Absalom. And David said, O Lord, please turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. But if you return to the city and say to Absalom, this is David speaking to another man, Husai, and I forgot to put that verse immediately before. This is, he says to Husai, if you return to the city and say to Absalom, I will be your servant, O king, as I have been your father's servant in time past, so now I will be your servant, then you, Husai, will defeat for me the counsel of Hithophel. So Hushai, David's friend, came into the city just as Absalom was entering Jerusalem. There's, a, there's these twists and turns, this complicated plot that's going on. Before we really start to untangle these twists and turns, would you pray with me? Father, we thank You for Your Word. That You, Heavenly Father, are a God who speaks to us. We confess to You that we are most often people who do not listen. We say we would like to hear from you, and then we do a different thing. But here, your word is open before us, and God, we pray that our hearts would be soft, our ears would be unclogged, we would be pierced by you, that you would shape us and change us to more readily and clearly reflect the image of your Son, to the glory of your name. Amen. Absalom. The text is, is creating for us these resonances between Absalom and before him David and before him Saul. In this narrative of 1 and 2 Samuel, the kings are, are named as extraordinarily good-looking people. And this did not work out well for Israel when Saul was the king. It worked out pretty well for Israel when David became king. And in Absalom, it will not go well. So there is this power and influence of external realities that influences Israel. And really, the, the, the closer image between Absalom and the two that preceded him is between him and Saul. 
Because the text will go out of its way to say that Saul stood ahead above the everybody else in Israel. He was super tall, not just good looking, but tall. Tall, good looking people obviously should be king. Um, Absalom, your attention is also drawn to his head. Peter Lightheart makes this, this observation that the text wants you to once again have your eye drawn to the head of this good looking potential king. And we should remember the way the text talked about Saul and look at what's happening with Absalom. This time, the thing that we're supposed to notice about Absalom is he's kind of born with this crown. This crown is this glorious flowing mane of hair. He is, in some sense, uh, enacting this faux Nazarite vow. These Nazarites were, were people that were not supposed to cut their hair as a sign of devotion to God. Of course, Absalom has his own twist on that because he does cut it every year. And he's known for this flowing locks of glorious, majestic hair. And, and what we are being told here is that Absalom, basically, he's aware of his looks. He is aware of the effect that he has on people. And Absalom is a man marked by vanity. Absalom approaches everything that he does. We've already seen it in the story with his sister and Amnon. We see it here in this story. We'll see it in the future. Absalom is entirely self-obsessed. Everything for Absalom is about the appeasement and advancement of Absalom. And Absalom will ultimately be undone by this obsession with himself. Absalom's vanity causes him to establish himself in the position of king, not against some random person, not against some usurper, but against his father. Absalom's vanity here in the text appears entirely foreign, appears to be something that you and I would never do. I mean, I don't know many people who have so much invested in their hair. We find other ways, though, to sort of orient the world around us. And that's, that's really at the heart of what vanity is. Not that you have to walk around the world all the time with a mirror saying, look how beautiful I am. That's not what's required to be vain. Vanity at its heart is a forever turning and looking at the world through the eyes of yourself. And for many people, that's not about the way that you look. Actually, you can see vanity manifested in the opposite of that, that you actually interpret the world through your own lack of beauty. You can, you can make everything about an insult to yourself or how you never fall, you never rise to the, the mark that you should rise to, that you're, you're not respected enough, that you're not loved enough. And, and it's, it's because if you, only you were more beautiful, more appealing, um, if only more people, you could be the kind of person that people respected and loved and saw. That, that sort of turning inward and looking on yourself is a kind of vanity, even though you're not saying, look how awesome I am, and you're saying the opposite. You're still marking and interpreting and changing the way the world works based entirely 
of the window of you and how you appear to others. The, the natural position of our heart is actually to make everything about us. Everything is about you and me. And we live in the middle of a culture that constantly reinforces that message. Our culture constantly shapes and forms you to believe that that is the right way to view the world. How long did it take for our phones to have cameras not just on the outside, but on the inside? How, how much of marketing is all about how you experience and engage the world and building that, the world around you? And how often do we get sinned against in our mind simply because people are unaware that you and I are the most important people in the world? This happens to me all the time in my household. This failure to recognize me as king on high over all the universe. And of course, I, I am thinking of myself and how much I deserve to be, to be cared for and served. And I'm never actually even expressing any of these things with words. I'm just actually silently assuming, surely my household will understand the, the way that I want things, the way that they should be. And how much of my day do I spend annoyed with my children because they've done something terrible, like make a noise that I don't like. And of course, I've never said any of these things out loud to them until they've done it so many times that it annoys me and I yell at them, will you please stop? I put please in there this time. There's probably not a please in there when I say it. Now, there's, there's limits to, to what each person can handle in terms of repetitive noise. All right, I'm not, I'm not saying it's not like it's a sin to ever be annoyed by noise pollution. But often tied up in the middle of that is this persistent obsession with self. And Absalom is, is externally doing what many of us also do, or at least would like to do. Absalom will quietly position himself at the gate of Jerusalem. And he will tell these half-truths or these lies to the people who come through to slowly turn their hearts towards him and see him as this great and glorious person. What it seems like Absalom is doing, he's not just outright saying, nobody can come see the king. What he's making people believe is that if you're not from David's tribe, Judah, that's why the text keeps saying Israel, if you're from any of the other tribes of Israel, David won't hear you, but he's, favor he's showing favoritism towards Judah. Now this isn't true, but it's a believable lie. And when Absalom tells this believable lie, he gets to be the hero of the story. Oh, if only I were appointed the king of Israel. Then all men would be able to come before me, the king. Absalom is presented as overtly planning this conspiracy against his father. But you and I fall into this habit so easily. 
You may not be trying to convince somebody that you actually should be king, but it is so easy to tell half-truths that just ever so subtly cast you in a better light than you deserve. To manipulate a conversation, not to be able to be completely honest with the person in front of you, but to slowly and quietly turn things in a way that nobody will ever know so they think better of you than they actually should. This is incredibly easy to do. We reinterpret the facts of of life subtly and instantaneously so that somehow we can be the hero of the story. Absalom is doing this in a pursuit of power. Most of us aren't even doing this to consolidate a political position or anything like that. We're just doing it to be more liked people, I guess. If there is as much a stake as this, as a kingdom, it's maybe easier to understand how Absalom ends up doing what he does. Now, Absalom is also a crazy person. He wanted to talk to Joab, and Joab wouldn't talk to him, so he set his field on fire. I mean, that did arrange a conversation. There was then some interchange between them, but he's clearly a psychopath. But this is kind of the way things work with people a lot of times. If you have not yet burned down bridges and fields and set things on fire to get what you want because you are so in the grips of being the center of the story, well, just wait. You'll probably experience it. And if you're left to your own devices, you'll probably do it. Even with the best of intentions, you will burn things down so that people will come and see you as the hero of the story. Now, David is this old king, and he appears to be basically clueless for most of the time about what his son is doing. And that, and that, and that may speak to either his age, uh, his lack of attention, and his, the end of his reign. Whatever it is, David is unaware of what's going on. And he is overwhelmed by what he hears when his son is proclaimed king at Hebron, which, oh, by the way, is also where David was proclaimed king. And that's not an accident. Absalom is doing this on purpose to kind of reclaim his father's story and make it about him. And so David finally does something kingly. He could stay in Jerusalem and say, we're going to throw down. Let's do this, my son. Bring it. But if he does that, Absalom and his new army will then encircle Jerusalem And it won't be just David and his people that suffer. It'll be all the residents of Jerusalem. So for several chapters now in the narrative of 1 and 2 Samuel, David has not been a great king. He finally does a really kingly thing. And he abdicates. He he leaves to spare the people of Jerusalem. He spares them. He, he He makes a pilgrimage out to the east of Jerusalem. And there's these little, little details thrown in the story that really matter for us. David goes out the eastern gate, making his way up the Mount of Olives. Whenever the people of God, whenever Israel makes their way east, 
they are leaving the presence of God. It's a repeated theme in the narrative of the Old Testament. When you go east, you are running away from what God intended. What was once yours. So for example, in the Garden of Eden, the people, Adam and Eve, leave out the eastern gate. And on the other end of David's story, once again, Israel will go east when they are taken into exile in Babylon. It's not, don't hear me say if you ever go east, you're running from God. That's not what I'm saying. Sometimes you have to go east. This direction in the narrative is cluing us in to this theme of, of moving away from God's intention and design. And David is running away from what is promised, not because he's doing the wrong thing, but because he's trying to spare the people. David is going into exile, in a sense, because of the betrayal of his son. And David is consumed with grief. And he does not see the way forward. His prayer is that somehow God will confound the plans of his enemies. And this is a a repeated prayer in the Old Testament. You can see it in the Psalms often. God, please confound the plans of my enemies. There's no real sense that David knows how that's going to happen until this guy, Hushai, comes. Hushai is this close friend. That's his official title, king's friend. That's how he's listed in 2 Chronicles. King's friend, Hushai. It's a job. That's his job. And Hushai is like, I'm with you, friend. I'm with you. And David sends him back as a spy to fight against this other conspirator, Ahithophel. He says, basically, flip around Ahithophel's scheming. God answers his prayer by sending him Hushai. But David is convinced that God's providence will undo the plans and schemes of the enemy. How often do we stand before life as some inscrutable thing? How in the world, how in the world are we going to get out of this? How in the world can we bear this weight? How in the world will things be set right? And and notice there's no like big light that comes. There's no voice that comes from heaven What David has is his experience of the past and the word that God has spoken to him proclaiming his covenant faithfulness. And David basically just says, I don't know how you're going to do it, but please unwind the plans of this enemy. Scripture will invite you into this kind of faith where God won't necessarily explain himself to you, but what he has revealed to you is his character. And he's asking you to trust his character. And that that still frees you to say, this is messed up. This is not right. This is not how things should be. Again, just read the Psalms. The Psalm that we read for our call to worship, Psalm 3, comes from this period in David's life where he's fleeing from his son Absalom. And he's he's saying, God, you've got to come and defend me. This is not right. The wicked are set against me. Break the teeth of my enemies. But what you are invited to do, whether you do not understand the plot or not, you are inspired, you are invited to trust the character of the God who has demonstrated his faithfulness in the past. And trust that even though the world is not the way it should be now, because he is who he is, it will one day be.
And he gets this first sign with Hushai that God will do just that. And this underlying trust in the character of God is what actually carries the narrative of all of Scripture. All under, one of the defining characteristics that hums beneath the surface of Israel's story is this confidence in the midst of confusion that God will set things right. And, and the good news is that God is such a faithful king that he will finally and ultimately indeed set things right. Jesus is the king that is the answer to that plea. When, the psalm, when you read the Psalms and they are crying out for vindication and the deliverance of God's people and the, the punishment of the wicked, they all have a historical context and you can set them in that context, but they're all pointing further even beyond that context. A deeper longing that God would deal with what is in the world and make it right. The people of God lament honestly and forthrightly and frankly in terms that often would scare you and I to pray. But beneath it is this confidence that God's character is such that He will set things right. And when Jesus comes into the story, He takes on David's mantle as the right and good king of Israel. And what He proclaims is that God's kingdom is invading. And that the world has been populated by lots and lots of usurpers. That lots and lots of Absaloms have been flipping their hair in the wind and putting themselves in the middle of the story. But finally, God is going to come and do something. The kingdom of God is present and advancing and growing. And God will deal with the betrayers, with the usurpers, with all the Absaloms that have populated the world. The problem is that the, everybody thinks that he is talking about somebody out there, that it's the Romans, that it's the power holders in Jerusalem. And Jesus instead turns the arrow inward and shows them how they are complicit with betrayal and usurpation and the coup that has corrupted heaven and earth. All people have been given over to this vanity and this vanity has turned us inwards, focusing everything on ourselves as if you and I believe that we are the right and true king or queen of heaven and earth. And when you put your claim to that throne, you are in Absalom's line. You are just like Absalom. And whether your vanity is marked by believing that you are unimpeachably good or mostly good or better than everybody around you or whether your vanity is all about how you should be better and how everything is terrible and woe is me and why won't everybody look at me and take care of me, whether your vanity is on either end of those spectrums, you are still right in the middle of Absalom's sin. And the prophets of old will speak of this day when the day of the Lord will come and He will come and He will judge those evildoers, those wicked ones. And yet, so many of these prophets came and they also said, and oh, by the way, Israel is among them. Judgment will come for them as well. Israel, God's people. So when Jesus shows up and He says in so many different ways that the day of the Lord is here, 
this day of judgment that is humming in the air, what then will happen? What we see is that David points the way forward for us by showing us a little bit of what Jesus is like. Because Jesus, too, will make His way towards the Mount of Olives. He, too, will be clothed in grief, as will all of those with Him. And though His place is in the the middle of Jerusalem, seated in power, He makes His way out the eastern gate to the forsaken place with a psalm on His lips. My God, my God, why have You forsaken Me? For Jesus as well, it is we who have been the betrayers. We are the ones who should be exiled. But Jesus instead goes into exile on our behalf. It is we who should be cast out from Jerusalem because we have been negligent sons and daughters. But Jesus, like David, is a good, good king. And he takes upon himself our own shame the fruit of our own vanity, and He lets Himself be burned to the ground by all of our sin and self-obsession. David is a good king. Jesus is the better king. When Jesus comes and He says the kingdom of God is at hand, He's very clear to let us know that we should be standing on the outside as Absalom's children. But because He loves us, He has become the way that we might forever live in the city of God. Sons and daughters seated at His table. Relationship mended. Jesus in the cross does not dodge evil like David does. Jesus instead goes to the cross and embraces evil. Our evil. Our vanity. He wears it like a crown on His own beautiful head and lets the thorns of it pierce and kill Him. If you are here this morning, Jesus is presented to you as the great rescuer from yourself. Life is awful when you are the center of the universe because the universe was not constructed to be built around little old me and you. Life is terribly difficult when something as silly as your five pounds of hair is flopping in the wind and you want everybody to acknowledge your glory but everybody else is busy living their own lives of self-glorification. Life is terribly hard that way. And Jesus wants to free you from that vanity. And and it doesn't take, it doesn't mean that you are forever living far from God. That sin is, is in all of our blood. You could be a churchgoer every week And that temptation to constantly read the world about being yourself, it's there again and again and again. So if you find yourself as like, I don't know how I ended up here again. 
I'm not sure how I could be such a vain person again. I don't know how I've turned this whole thing about me again. The temptation is to say, I must have reached a point where God is like, forget it, we're killing Absalom, we're done with this one. But the good news of the gospel is that no matter how deep your betrayal is, the faithfulness of the king who is your father far surpasses your betrayal. No matter how far you've fallen down this road of looking down on yourself, looking inward all the time, God wants to lift up your eyes outside of yourself and put your focus on him. And he will keep on doing this until the day that you see him with unveiled face. No matter how far you've fallen away from him, he is still the God who says that he loves you. He loves you. He loves you. Jesus is the hero, the king, that you and I desperately need. This morning, he is presented before you in all of his splendor, the glory of the crucified and risen God who awaits your homecoming so you can live with him both now and forever to the praise of his name. Amen. Let me pray for you. Jesus, we confess to you that our hearts naturally bend inwards. We want to think about ourselves. We do think about ourselves all the time. We are constantly making ourselves presentable in the best light. And we all have hundreds of different ways of doing that. And it is exhausting to sustain this illusion that we are great and worthy of respect and love. And everybody should see us and behold us in our glory. It's exhausting to try to interrupt and usurp your kingdom. Father, I pray that we would give ourselves over to that exhaustion, that we would quit, that we would surrender, that we would not try to keep the holy hill. God, you are exiled for us. In your humanity, you experience the forsakenness that we ought to have forsaken. You are a king that so outshines us. Father, I pray that you will deliver us from our sin. Deliver us, God. Lord Jesus, I pray that you in your cross would be before our eyes. That every person here would have their chin lifted. That we might see you there. Deliver us and free us from ourselves, God. And rescue us into your kingdom again and again and again. As you are able and willing to do. Amen.